Art of the Cut is brought to you by Studio Network Solutions, helping video teams in over 80 countries transform the way they store, share, and organize content. Studio Network Solutions' industry-leading Evo shared storage servers come with a perfect suite of core features you'll love, like built-in media asset management and powerful integrations for Adobe, Resolve, Avid, and FCP10. They've even made it easier to work from home with their new remote editing tool, Nomad. Visit studionetworksolutions.com slash AOTC and sign up for a demo today. Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. In this episode, I'm talking with Felicia Livingston, whose editing credits include the TV series All-American, You, The Red Line, The Flash, Supergirl, and American Crime. She had also previously assistant edited on Rizzoli and Isles, Sleepy Hollow, Hawaii Five-O, Smallville, and Terminator, The Sarah Connor Chronicles. Try saying that five times fast. There are very few people of color in editing, and fewer still women of color. I hope the hiring practices in the industry become more inclusive and certainly work to that end myself. I wanted to spotlight Felicia, who is a black female union editor, to shed some light on this disparity. But as you will soon hear... Like all the other guests on Art of the Cut, she has lots of great editing and career advice. I really had a blast interviewing her. I kind of want to start the conversation with just kind of understanding what your background is and how you, you know, why you wanted to become an editor, why you felt like that was a a path you could um, walk. I actually got in the business actually on a, I want to say a fluke, but it wasn't. I mean, like all the other people that come in the business fell in love with films as a kid, you know, staying up late. For me, I fell in love with the story of Judo and Red Lantern uh, when they were playing on Cinemax. And they were, when I was a little kid, when Cinemax actually used to play really great foreign films, but they would play it after midnight and they don't do it anymore. So I got exposed to all these great foreign films, you know, uh, Krzysztof Kieslowski, the Red, Blue, and White trilogy. So I fell in love with these films, and I was like, God, I really want to just kind of want to try to explore this. When I graduated college, I was like, let me just try. So I just packed up and moved out here. Didn't know anybody, just sent resumes. I didn't know how to do it. Facts. (laughs) Like, I didn't even email (laughs) fax resumes from Kiko. Somebody at Wolf Films got my resume, and said, hey, come in, we have a post-PA position. And I, I met Arthur Fournay in person. That was the first time I saw a person of color in editorial. I got the job and it was just, it, well, films, it's this long hallway where all they have all the Law & Order films, which now they have all the Chicago films there. But at that time, it was like all the Law & Order films. As a post-PA, I could go to each room and talk to these editors. So these editors were like Doug Eibold, Dorian Harris, Monte DeGraff, Heber Frazina, Randy Roberts, all these amazing editors who were like, hey, come in and just watch. And I would sit on the floor and I would just watch them. And that's how I fell in love with editing. And that's how I was like, oh, I want to do this. This is what I want to do. How I got in the union is a whole nother story. That's a whole nother life. <laughs> <laughs> but that's how I was like, I got that. That's how I like fell in love with editing sitting and watching these people and just watching them work. That was like, that's how I learned. Monty DeGraff is a, a gentleman of color, correct? Is 
Yes, Monty DeGraff was there. There was also an assistant editor there named uh, Anthony Scott, who was also uh, a person of color. Another PA, he was another man of color named Sean Taylor. To me, I felt like I was in this very safe place. I was surrounded by people of color. Just didn't think about it. I did not hit me that I was the only female of color. That never occurred to me, but that was as a post PA. And that, because I had all these men and they were... I mean, Monty was just lovely. Arthur, just one of the smartest men I have ever met. And he, every Monday, he would come into his office and he would say, and I don't know if he still does this, but at that time he would tell, look at me and Sean and say, okay, what movies should you watch this weekend? That was our Monday. So we were encouraged, you had to watch movies because neither one of us went to film school. So... That was our film school. What films did you watch? And we had to be able to summarize the films. So I would go to Eddie Brandt's Saturday matinee every Saturday morning, get my five DVDs. That was my weekend. Because it was like, okay, by Monday, I'm going to get quizzed. <laughs> <laughs> that was my first introduction. And it was honestly, it was just, it was luck. It really was luck. But that, that was my film school because I did not go to film school. Lots of people just kind of lucked into editing. Absolutely, and all these editors who just kind of, their doors were open, like come in and watch. There were female editors, just come in and watch. And I would just sit and watch. And I remember at the time, cause I was like, I was really kind of very insecure thinking, man, maybe I should go to film school. Another editor named Leon Ortiz Gill, who still works there was like, you don't understand. You're in the best film school that you could ever have. You are in a place that if you go to film school, she's like, what you're learning, you will not get at film school. The context that you're making, you will not get at film school. He's like, I know that people will tell you film schools, they'll make the context. It's like, but if this is what you want to do, this is the best film school that you will ever have. And he was also very blunt on me. He's like, look, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be a very hard knock road, but you can do it. And this is the best film school. Those words I still hold to this day. And, and he was absolutely right. Absolutely right. Now, do you think he was telling you that as a black person, as a woman, or just because it's a tough industry? Both. Both. Leon is Latino, and he knew how hard it is as a person of color, also as a woman, and also just he had years of experience. And he just knows. He was just like, it was just, you know, very much like a very godfather figure that just kind of looked out for us. It's odd that when I look back on it, it never crossed my mind that I was the only female. We have women of color who were post-supervisors, but editorial, it just didn't, I didn't feel like I was alone because I had these great men there. Mm-hmm. You know, it didn't hit me until I went to the next job and I was the only woman and only person of color. That's when I was like, oh, this is the real world. First job was a little bit of a being in a bubble. It really did set the groundwork for me and helped me. I will give all credit to that first job. I want to talk uh, with you about the art of editing, but I do want to touch on the idea 
of race and sex. There's one way to look at it where it's like, oh, I'm colorblind. I don't see the color of people's skin. And you're like, everybody's the same. But then there's also, why is it valuable not only to ignore the color of someone's skin when you're hiring them, but to go, this is an asset. Why is it an asset to hire you as a woman or as a person of color? I think that because I've heard the, the adage, oh, I don't see color, which we know is wrong. It's wrong. You do. The asset for me is there are certain things that as a black woman of color that I was raised with from, you know, with my mom that a lot of people just don't have. And it, 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 it's just one of those things of you, you have a mindset. You, if you have a character, for instance, on All American, it's about a young man and a football player who plays high school football for Beverly Hills High and he's from South Central. The scenes that I love cutting the most are the scenes with him and his mom basically telling him, okay, you need to be careful when you're on that bus going to Beverly Hills or when you're in your friend's car and who and they're from Beverly Hills and they're driving a nice car because you're going to get stopped just because of your skin color. There is that undertone of fear that as a person of color that you just have. It's just one of those things of, I, I was telling a friend, when you're going to work, you get in your car and you go to work, you go to the editing room. As a person of color, there's an added thing of, I just hope I get to work without getting stopped today. And if you're coming home late, because we all work late, you know, sometimes you're coming home at one, two o'clock in the morning. I've done it many times. It's not just, oh, I just want to get home so I can go to sleep and I'm tired. I'm just trying to get home so I don't get stopped. You know, that's a whole nother mental mindset that is added onto your day with all the other things that you have to do with the job. I think that is the asset that a person of color has to deal with. That I'll be honest, I'm sure that you don't have to, you just don't think about it. You know, it's just, it's just something you just don't think about. It's just like that whole other asset. You know, it's just like you can't. I find myself, if I see a cop, every time I see a cop car driving, I literally tense. I slow down. I like, it's all, and that's just me trying to get to work. That all being said, it doesn't mean that people who aren't of color can not edit predominantly black themed or Latino themed projects. The storytelling is still the same, but the difference is, is that editors that, that do that, they listen. That's the key. Just listen. They're like, they understand the story. Everyone does, that process is still the same, no matter what project you do. But being able to listen to the director, to the showrunner and say, oh, this is what you have to go through. That's the difference. And that's an asset that innately a person of color just already has. Not to make it a pun, but that colors your editing when you're cutting that scene with that person because of your experience. Yeah, it does. We all have different experiences. As a black woman, my, as a black person, my experiences can be totally different. Black experience is totally different than what somebody else's black experience could be, depending on where you grew up, mm -hmm. you know? So it's, 
and I found that very interesting. I grew up in Texas and then went to college in Louisiana. So I know some things. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. (laughs) The last two shows that the last two movies that I cut were predominantly black casts, predominantly black stories. And it would be interesting to see how, how that would be colored by having a, a different experience, having the experience of being a black person instead of coming from my experience. You're able to feel what the characters are going through because you're like, oh, I've gone through, oh, I know that. I've gone through <laughs> that. And you're like, oh, you know, you're looking at the dailies and you're like, oh, I remember this happened to me or if you're really able to relate to it, which we all want to relate to our characters. I like to think that all editors have a certain sense of empathy that allows them to say, hey, look, I don't have this experience of being this black person, but I can certainly cut this scene uh, because I, they're a human being, I'm a human being, I can do it. But there is, I don't know what we'd call it, a subtext that you might understand that I wouldn't? I would definitely say it's a subtext. I mean, I'm sure you've seen online and everything where you see people say to their black child, okay, we got to have the talk. Mm-hmm. When I was young, it was never characterized as the talk with my mom. It was just, this is what you do. You have to be very careful, but you can accomplish anything and everything you want. It will be harder. You will be able to accomplish anything and everything that you want. So it was not characterized as the talk. I think that that is something that it doesn't matter if you're black, Asian, or Latino. You just, as a person of color, you just kind of innately, you have that. It's just something that your parent has told you. You've seen it. That is that subtext that you bring. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, projects that your last few projects that you've done, because you're able to bring a humanity, and when you're cutting, it still doesn't negate that that's the same thing that we all have in common, just trying to bring that humanity to your process. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's scenes you're cutting with people of other races and it doesn't make it impossible to do. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And we all cut things where you're just like, okay, I have no relationship (laughs) to this character. I I, I cut season two of you and I, I was like, you know, the dude is a serial killer. You're not, <laughs> you're really not supposed to like this guy. And then as I'm cutting this character and it's disturbing and yet I'm having fun, I don't relate to him whatsoever. <laughs> However, I'm like, okay, there's a little bit of humanity that you're putting in. And then I'm like, okay, now I can see why people on the internet go crazy when it drops on Netflix and they think he's a handsome guy and they relate to him. I'm like, but he's a serial killer. <laughs> you know, just kind of like, eh. it's, there's humanity to that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think of that from the actor's standpoint. They always love to, you know, okay, I can't relate to this person, but I'm going to find the humanity in the person. Yeah, it still it still comes back to the humanity, and it's just part of our job as storytellers because you have that, and you have to. And it doesn't matter what project that you're doing; it could be huge, big shows, it could be big films. That humanity is that one thing is what you need to try to find in the footage so that an audience can relate to that character. You edited the pilot of the TV series The Red Line, which ran on CBS last spring. What made that special? 
the pilot was my first pilot. So I think you will always remember your very first pilot, you know, really being kind of thrown into the water uh, and the deep end of the ocean. So there's that aspect of it. Uh, the other aspect was working with the director, uh, Victoria Mahoney. She was just very much a, a filmmaker and her vision, it was just astounding. Her director's cut was one of the most beautiful thing I'd ever, ever seen. It's like when you sometimes when you work on a project and you start, you get the footage and you're just like, wait a minute on that first day because you're already nervous and you just like and then you start looking at it and you open that bin and you look at that first take you're like, wait a minute, there's something different here. There's something and then you're like, whoa, <laughs> and it just it's just kept going. So it was the joy of working with her in that director's cut. And I specifically say the director's cut because as we all know on pilots, once it gets past that director's cut phase and it goes to studio network and rounds and rounds, it's drastically different and especially on a network show. But that experience was like, it was very collaborative and I had had so much fun working with her on, on that. It was interesting when she came in the editing room, just how gunk how she was and her film knowledge. She's like, oh my God, this is amazing. Another film school. Every time I work on a show, it's like, it's all film school to me. And I enjoy learning so much. If I ever get to the point on anything where I feel I'm not learning, then number one, I shouldn't be working on that show, shouldn't be working on that job, or, you know, it's time for me to leave the business. Honestly, even on very difficult shows, you look back on it and you say, at least I'll learn this. You know, even if it's like you're learning how to deal with the showrunner, how to manage your team, how to even protect your editorial team. Just like everything that you have to do, it's not just now where you can say, I just want to go in and edit and then go home. You have to take a little bit more culpability. And I think for me, that's where I'm at right now. Even learning new editing techniques, new ways of storytelling, I love everything about that. Everything. So yeah. if I get to the point where I don't and I'm not learning, then I need to reconsider my career. It's like even jobs that you take just to pay the bills, that you're like, okay, I'm just taking the job just to pay the bills. We all have done it. Those are the jobs that I have found that I've had the most fun at and I learned the most. Again, it's all from school to me. When you had that beautiful red line footage come in, did that make it, more scary or less scary that you had such great footage to work with? <laughs> it was terrifying. <laughs> it was terrifying. And I remember I remember asking friends, editors who I worked with before, and I was just like, okay, what do, you, what do I do? Like, I, And one editor was just like, okay, what are you feeling? And I was just like, I don't know where to start. It's so gorgeous. I want to use everything. She was like, okay, roll with that feeling. And it's okay to say, you don't know how to cut this scene. And the minute I said that, I was just like, it was just like a weight just lifted. And then I was like, okay, now I can actually sit and really kind of pay attention to what's happening. To finish my editor's cut and sit back and watch it, for me, having that footage and, and, and then being able to watch it as a viewer, which I think is just like really, really key. If you are able to do that as an editor, that was like, okay, there is something here. There's something here. What is a trick or a key, or is it just a mental attitude to being able to watch something like a viewer? 
And I, while you're thinking about that, I'll give you an example of someone that they just said that they export it as a QuickTime and take it to another TV that they don't have any control. It, that helps them separate themselves. Uh, that's actually what I do. I actually export it and I, I usually watch it at home where I have no control whatsoever. And then I'll take notes because when I used to like sit and watch the card in the editing room, I was like, oh, well, you know, <laughs> you know, and I would, <laughs> and I'm like, no, I have to. You got to touch the keyboard. You have to. Like you're just itching and then I'm like, okay, I can't stop. And then I'm like, let me just have my assistant export it. You know, I'll bring it home and I can watch it at home. That was actually the biggest key for me because then it's like you, you see things differently, especially if, if you're doing like a big VFX show and or action sequence. You just like you can see where the rhythm is. You can see if it's working or not. You can see if the music is, is, is going and you just see if you're feeling it. You're just feeling it. And, and that, to me, is the biggest case. So I agree with, um, you just got to, for me, the, what helps is exporting it and just not even watching it in the office. I prefer to watch it at home. Watching it at home helps me to watch it as a viewer and not being in an office space with beautiful speakers, beautiful monitor. But watching it at home on your TV is what the average viewer will probably watch it as. So you, you see things a little different. We'll be back in a moment with more of my interview with Felicia Livingston. Whether you're working from home or in your facility, your media has to be secure, organized, and accessible by your whole team. Studio Network Solutions Evo shared storage servers now include Nomad, an easy-to-use utility to help media production teams work from home, on the road, or anywhere in the world. Evo shared storage servers provide ultra-fast performance for real-time 4K and even 8K editing. Each Evo comes with built-in media asset management software, so you can easily search, tag, and preview all your storage. Evo also features backup and sync tools, so you always know your media and projects are protected. Plus, powerful integrations to improve your workflows in Adobe Premiere Pro, DaVinci Resolve, Avid Media Composer, and Final Cut Pro 10. Visit studionetworksolutions.com slash AOTC and discover a better way to store, share, and organize your media. As a special offer for my listeners, you can get 10% off a new Evo system by going to studionetworksolutions.com slash AOTC and signing up for an online demo today. And now, back to my interview with Felicia Livingston. Uh, so you had some great mentors, it sounds like. Did you pick up your approach to a blank timeline from those people? Have you, has it adapted or evolved? Uh, it has adapted. I think that when I was an assistant, I would just watch the editors that I worked with and watch how they would approach the blank timeline. Watching them and having worked with so many, with several different editors, it just kind of morphed in over time. When I got the opportunity to, to edit, it was just just like a, a, a blend of all of these different techniques. It was also one of those things of just diving in. You know, you just got to you just got to just at one point you can sit there and you can just try to do uh, all these techniques and, have, and the next thing you know, your day is gone. And especially that's terrifying on your first day of editing. So you just got to dive in and. 
then as I dived in, that's what all these techniques and just kind of that morphed over time. And that's what's helped me. What's your current approach? What techniques do you use? When I open the bin, it depends on what it is. If it's a big action sequence, I will have my assistant organize the bin in frame view. And then I will or, I will organize the, the takes in, in blocks by action. So if it's blocked out, and then that's how I organize my bin. If it's a lot of takes that the director has covered ad nauseum, I will break it up into <laughs> two bins because sometimes it's like, okay, that's a little terrifying. Just having all those frames looking at you makes it a little easier to tackle. But I organize it if the action sequence blocked by action, if it's a lot of action happening. So, for example, like a character, they're in a fight. It's when they go up against the wall over here, that's one section of the action. Absolutely. So that's one section. And so I will have, if that's the first action, then I will have that first. Then the second action is if all the takes of, if the character's thrown out of a window, mm. I will have that next. They fall onto the floor. Falling to the floor. Then I will have that. And then I would just have all of that. And then at the very bottom of my bin, if it's VFX, I have all the clean plates. I like all the clean plates lined up at the very bottom of the bin. That just kind of helps me. By blocking it out, it's actually, you know, with rave scene order. And what I have found so far with TV, with the crazy schedule that you're under with action sequences, that helps me to, to remember the action and I don't have time sometimes to have my assistant do a line script. So those action sequences, they're not lined. What I do is as I watch the sequence, I make I make what I, I call like a visual line script. I, I mark with locators. For me, it's kind of like a memory technique that, that helps me remember what the action is. And so I'm actively engaging in the footage. So I make markers as I watch. And that's what helps me know where everything is as it's blocked out. And then if there's dialogue, I will usually have the dialogue in another bin. So all dialogue for that sequence. Depending on, on what it is, I sometimes I will tackle the dialogue first and then I'll just have slugs. Then I close that dialogue bin. Don't even look at it. And then I would just focus on the action and make sure that the rhythm is right. And I cut it dry. That first pass, I give it to my assistant to do sound effects on. And then I will go back and just refine it. I don't put any score, temp score or anything in it till the very last until it's really all assembled. So that's how I, I pretty much tackle uh, a big action sequence. And if it's something with plates, where you don't have anything, you can only hope. Sometimes you get animatics or previs. A lot of times you don't have it. So then it's, I cut in the plate. I will try to have the VFX assistant do a temp if they have the assets to do a temp uh, VFX on it. So that will help me with my timing. If we don't have the assets to do that, then it's like, okay, we have to build this out and time it all with sound effects. So a lot of times I will either, if we have storyboards, I would just cut in the storyboards. And that's how I time the sequence. So I'll cut in a storyboard, picture in picture, small, like corner. 
And then that's how I will prime if it's just plates. It just all depends. So th yeah, that's how I pretty much tackle it. And then a big action sequence. It, and if it's just dialogue lined up by setups, you know, sometimes you have those eight, 10 minute long scenes, you know, <laughs> with the time constraints and everything on shows that I've personally worked on, I have my assistants usually don't have time to do line script for me. So again, it's watching, just diving in, and I watch all the dailies. I actually prefer to start at the, the first take instead of the last of a setup, because I just like to see the progression of seeing how the actor gets to where they're going. Because sometimes that first take for me, those first few takes for me, if there's several takes, there's something very raw. Yeah, that fresh. actors done very fresh. So by the time they get that last take, yeah, they figured out how they figured out everything, and it's you can say yeah, it's perfect. But that first take, that was a very fresh look, emotion, and I like to keep that. And I'll cut that in, and then I just kind of build my sequence set that way. I've heard a lot of people say that they go for reactions in early takes because of that. The actors are like less surprised. You know, they give a more honest reaction. That's interesting. Everybody's got a different technique. Some people watch front to back. Some people watch back to front. It doesn't sound like you're a selects real person, or is that what you're meaning by aligned? You were saying aligned script, which I know what that is, but are you script sync? Script sync, yes. Oh, script sync. Okay, great. I don't use script sync. Just because of the time constraints for me. I actually do selects on action sequences. Doing a select reel actually helps me on action sequences. If it's an emotional scene with actors and they're doing a lot of crying and it's a lot of takes, I will do a select reel on that as well. For me, doing a select reel is really kind of... I really kind of leave it most to, I do it most on action sequences and VFX action sequences most and more than anything. That that helps me infinitely. You mentioned uh, VFX and VFX plates um, and, and cutting with that. I, I watched a scene from Flash with uh, King Shark, which was an episode that you mentioned. And those plate, or not the plates, those scenes you have to get that animation or VFX stuff much later. Are you cutting in with a just a plate and having to imagine a shark coming to a window? I mean, like, how long do you sit on that? It was literally just a plate. So there's a scene in the King Shark episode where he's, there's several scenes where, one, he's fighting Flash in the middle of a street. So it's just the actor looking. That actually was different in that, when it's King Shark, we had a man in like this, he's on stilts <laughs> and he's in like this big black suit. So you have the actor looking up at this guy and these stilts and he's just like <laughs> doing that. <laughs> you have the script supervisor saying the lines of what King Shark is supposed to say. So that's how the actor Grant Gustin was able to like look up and get the eye line correct. Then there are scenes where King Shark actually storms through a building and that was just a plate. So I took a storyboard, cut it out, and it's just kind of going back. It's kind of like just cutting in the storyboard and I just had to time it out. There's the house, there's the roof, time it out. This is what he's supposed to do. You just time it out and you're just basically cutting storyboards and you're, you're animating the storyboards. By saying you're timing it out, it's you're imagining how long the action is going to take. You're literally imagining the action as it's happening. 
So for instance, there's a scene where there's a big chase over the water. Those are just all blades. That's all just stock footage. So it's as you're cutting it, you have the storyboard in the corner and you just, you're making, I literally will make <laughs> making noise. <laughs> but it works and so that way I'm like okay then that's how I would get my timing then I give the sequence to my assistant like okay I have this first cut this is the timing of it at the time the assistant at the time who's like how did you figure this out like you're actually cutting like (laughs) you make the sounds and he's like oh that helps that helped him so he was able to cut the sound effects to what I did and that's how I do first cut on anything if I have to cut a plate I'll have the storyboard, but yeah, you just as you're cutting, you're like, entering, <laughs> <laughs> but that's my method. Not a lot of logic to it, but that's that's the method, especially when you don't have previs. So when you get a sequence, so you're like, oh, I have previs, plop it in. Oh, this is great. Yeah, but that when you have plates, that's what you do. The other thing is, so you were talking about your assistant putting the sounds in to a scene that you've already cut. That would also possibly affect your pacing when you see, when you hear what they did, because the sounds change the visual sense of pacing. The sounds change the flow, and when, but that's also very helpful because when you get it back and it's all, you know, you have the sound effects in, it doesn't matter what project or even film, you still don't need to put music on it. The sound effects is such a beautiful bed of sound. A lot of people don't realize you can play an entire action sequence without score whatsoever and just have that sound effects and that will build up tension. That will that will help you. So and that that when I get that sequence back and it does affect my rhythm and I can see what's working, I can see what's not working. It also helps me if you know, my assistant comes back and says, yeah, I, I just didn't understand what this plate meant. Then it's like, okay, yeah, then we need to either, I need to adjust. I need to, you know, having that second eye, set of eyes actually helps me. So, but that helps that rhythm coming back and then I'll adjust it. I'll refine it, make it tighter or realize, oh, I need to stay a little longer on a shot because it's not enough time to get the action across in a plate trying to get those timings perfect can freeze you, can paralyze you when you're cutting, but then you just have to realize, right, that it's a process. Like, I'm going to change this. You're going to change it. You're going it's to, a, it's a total process and it's ever evolving. It, as you know, it's just like a process till it finally airs or mm-hmm. it's finally released. You know, you are constantly changing. You're constantly refining. You're constantly adjusting. And, and that's okay. You know, that's what we do. That's honestly what we do. We were constantly refining, we're constantly adjusting. If you think, oh, this is it and it's perfect. Yeah, no. <laughs> I learned very early on, it's like, it's never perfect. No, no, it's constantly refining. Was that something that you had to learn or that you saw modeled for you from by the editors that it is a process that, because for me, that was a very hard thing for me to realize that my first cut wasn't going to be my last cut, which sounds crazy, but I had to learn patience. Yeah, it's interesting you said that because it is something that you don't think about that 
learning patience, it sounds very, it's very easy to say, but it's actually very difficult to do. I think for me, I learned it just sitting in the room with showrunners as an assistant editor taking notes. That Again, another part of film school that I had the opportunity, I, I encourage more assistants to do that, to sit in the room with the editors and take notes. So for me, sitting in the room and seeing the ever-evolving process and then seeing the editor after the showrunner left or the director leaves and it's like, okay, now this is how we got these notes. Now we have to just continue to refine this and it's never stopping. That was, I learned very early on. So I knew when I finally became an editor, I knew, no, my first cut is not going to be the, the final cut. It's, it's an ever-evolving process. Maybe something totally different because you have showrunners that, that have a total different vision in their head because of what they've written, you know, and they see it differently. So you're just like, oh, okay, well, I didn't think of that. They know parts of the story that the editor doesn't know necessarily that haven't been scripted or they might be on a wall in a writer's room, but you don't know them. When you're working on one episode, you're, you're working on that one episode, but you don't know the total arc of the entire season. They may know like, oh, hey, the entire season is here. This is what we have to, we have to like try to show. So it's, you know, totally ever evolving. So I, but I definitely learned that very early on and very, and learned the refined art of being patient, which I admit I'm not sometimes. I wanted to talk about a strange thing, which is kind of room layout or room size, because you mentioned the fact that you were in those rooms for the showrunner notes. And I've talked to other editors that say, you know, it's kind of a shame the rooms are so small, you got to cram so many producers into the room that the assistants can't be in the room during the notes. But it sounds like you were. Talk to the about the importance of those notes in your education and your growth as an editor. As an assistant, I was lucky that even on small rooms, sometimes I was at the door sill, the room is packed, or I'm like at the door still standing, taking notes. It wasn't even a question. It was no, because all the editors I worked with came from, you know, Moviola and working on Steenbeck's and, you know, Kim's, that they were like, no, you're in the room. It was not even a question. So you had to, I had to figure out a way. Even if I was sitting on the floor right next to the editor's chair, looking straight up, I had to figure out a way to be in the room. So when I became an editor, no matter what size of the room, when I became an editor, my first room was actually huge. It was an old office, an executive office. So it was huge. So I could have, I, I had like 10 writers in the room, showrunners. It was insane. Very intimidating. And then, <laughs> <laughs> but there was still room for my assistant to be in the room as well. And then I've had very small rooms where there hasn't been room for the assistant, I strongly say, look, no, you have to be in the room. If you have to stand in the doorway or you're sitting in the doorway or in the hallway, you need to be in some type of earshot to hear the showrunner. Because I have worked on shows specifically on, on you and on All American where as the showrunner is giving notes, I'm taking notes, but I've seen the showrunner turn to the assistant to look at them and say, you got this note. They're talking to the, literally turning, and that is what you want. Because, you know, you want that, that extra set of ears. They'll, they'll find a way. You want an extra set of ears, and you also, as an assistant, or as you trying to grow an assistant, you also want the showrunner to know the assistant, their name, their face. 
absolutely have to know their face have to know and that that makes the showrunner more confident as well and to trust like you said to trust the the assistant in that assistant that's how the assistant is learning as well because as we all know like the technical part of the job pushing buttons you're seeing people learn that in school and they think, oh, well, I learned this in school. You, you've been, I'm sure you've heard people say, oh, well, I have a son and he learned it. He figured this out or a daughter and he figured this out. That is just such a small aspect of what we do because it's all in here. The other aspect is communication with the showrunner, with the director, with the producer. They don't teach that in film school. You can't, you can't articulate that. I, I wouldn't be able to articulate how to do that. That's why the assistant needs to be in the room. You need to be able to see and learn that aspect of the job. I feel like we need that song from Hamilton. You know, I want to be in the room where it happened. Dude, I think I'm going to like make that my new ringtone. There was another episode that I watched of Flash that was a musical. Tell me a little bit about cutting that and some of the difficulties or, or what you were able to see uh, as that was going together. It was actually one of the most fun experiences I've, I've, I have to admit I've had in my career. Um, and I'm glad <laughs> that I had it because I realized, oh my God, I really do love musicals. Like, I was like, I love musicals. It was just like that weird thing. I'm like, oh, I love cutting this. Uh, I had never cut a musical before. I, you know, you, we've all cut montages, but that's totally different. Oh, yeah. So with this, we had to figure out a way how to cut these sequences. I think it was like five songs there were two original songs. On the editorial team was another assistant who had worked on Pitch Perfect, the very first Pitch Perfect. So I went to him and I said, how did you organize the dailies for your editor? And he was interesting. This is and he and he was like, This is what you do. And because there was so much planning on that episode, there were like months of planning just for the songs. We knew about it months ahead of time so everybody was preparing for it so when it finally first day of shooting the sound got it right like we had the two pop on every take like we had earwigs like the two leads had worked on glee they knew what they were doing so a lot of that first time of we don't know what we were doing we had people that actually knew what they were doing i didn't i figured it out um (laughs) So the other assistant, my friend Chris, I had my assistant line up all the dailies in a one big sequence, all the takes. So it's like a visual script sync. All the video tracks are lined up to the top. So I would have, you know, a scene with all the video takes of singing would be stacked. So I would have sometimes 24 video tracks uh, on a scene. And, but they were all in sync because of the Tupac, to the original, the song, which was at the very bottom on a stereo track. That way I could go through at any moment in the song and it would stay in sync and that's how I cut. And that's how I could see everything. And so I, that would be like its own sequence. So it would literally cut from that musical sequence of the song and I would cut it into make select bend, a select sequence off of that. And that's how I was able to have everything stay in sync and just line up. You were using that as a source? Yeah, I was using it as a source. So, yeah, so I would have 
a sequence and that would be in my source monitor. And then I could like say, well, I want to see all the takes when he's singing the line, baby. And I could go to that moment in that song and I could see just toggle through all the video tracks, just talk through and then see all the camera angles for him singing what was covered for that line. See all the extras, what happened, all the dancers. The first song was a little clunky because we, we were still working out the flow, but by the time we got to the last song, realized that all lead singers would be on tracks one, two, three, four, you know, if there were four lead singers. And then if there were dancers, they would be five, six. So that's how I organized. And that would be my source. And I would just cut all the musical sequences off of that. And then my assistant, that first musical number, it took him a while to get into the flow, but because we had that asset of having somebody who worked on Pitch Perfect in our editorial crew, and then we were also, like, we were calling people, too. I would call in friends, it's like, hey, do you know any editors on Glee, and how do they do it on that? And that's how we did it. Just get all these tips, and, like, we, we just figured it out. It would have been nice, but if we could have had time for script to script sync everything, but this was like, it, it just worked. It just, it was just like, my assistant was able to like, when he got it, it's like, okay, boom. And he, we would just, you know, crank through it. Was there any discussion of why not to use multicam? You can use multicam on some takes. I think we had like seven cameras on one take. So we, you can switch multicam when I have it in the source. So I could see all mm -hmm. the camera angles for that specific line, but to do that for all the, you know, it was, it was just impossible. This was just the cleanest way for us and, and for me to do it. Yeah. With the multicam, it was just like, it was so many takes. I will say this, it was one of those things that because the director and I, we had worked together on, they have these crossover episodes and we had worked together on a crossover episode that season. So by the time we got to this musical episode, we had kind of, we were like, okay, we know each other. We know, he's like, I got you. You got me. I'm not worried about it. I know you're going to watch everything. We're good. <laughs> so he was calling. He's like, did I get everything? I'm like, yes, you did. So uh, the multicam was, it, it was an option, but we, I just found it for the needs and how much footage the director shot because it was still on a normal, insane episodic schedule. Which is uh, what for those shows? Nine-day shooting schedule. Anywhere from two to four days editor's cut, four days director's cut, and then you have like a week producer's cut. It's usually about anywhere from two weeks to maybe three weeks for VFX. So you can kind of refine there. I mean, I did have several episodes where I had like one day turnaround. It just depends on the, that schedule. And once you get through the producer's cut, are you, even though you've got those, like you said, weeks of VFX, are you onto another show and kind of jumping back and forth at that point? Once I get through the producer's cut and it's gone through studio and network and has locked, I'm usually sometimes, even during studio and network, I'm usually on another episode. So it's not on, not unheard of to be working on two episodes at the same time because the effects come in and they're sort of cut in by the VFX team you still have to look at it and refine it, give your notes and make sure that it's what the showrunner wants. And then sometimes it's like, okay, not what I thought. We got to recut this. 
Earlier in the interview, you alluded to the fact that uh, you love the director's cut with, of Redline, and then it goes, it becomes something else, right? In TV, the director kind of goes away, and you have a new allegiance, you have new politics, you have new, I don't know, collaboration. Talk to me a little bit about how that works, that transition. Well, in TV, it's the, the showrunner medium it's you know the writer produces medium with the director coming in you only really have four days working with them to cut their vision of the episode and then when the showrunner comes in the showrunner is not just thinking of that episode but thinking of the entire show and how this one little you know nugget is going to fit into this entire theme of this this show you know when the showrunner comes in what they want so that actually informs you when you're cutting your editor's cut for me a lot of times when i'm cutting my editor's cut having worked with the showrunner before it's like oh i kind of know having worked with them they really like this they like this style i try to do that and maintain that in the editor's cut before you know they even come in and then with the director, they, they have a different vision and they see things and heard things that you don't know. So they'll bring in that. But then when the showrunner comes in, you know, they're telling you what their vision is. So you kind of hopefully have kind of mitigated some of that workload a little bit mm-hmm. early. At least that's what I try to do. And when you're working with the director and you, you kind of know, as you said, what the showrunner is expecting or what the show style is, if the director pushes against that, what do you do? Do you try to inform them or do you go, hey, no, well, let's do the director's vision? You know what? I do the director's vision. It is their cut. They may be bringing something that you've never thought of before. For me, I've just always find it interesting. Just let's just do the vision. I have said it a couple of times because it may be like totally like I'm not going to show this is going to fly. I'm letting you know. <laughs> However, we will do it. Uh, but I will always do the director's vision. Talk to me about bringing up assistance or if someone, a person of color, a woman, a female person of color is interested in becoming an editor. Like, what is your advice? Do you encourage it? I absolutely encourage it. I think right now, actually just a, a beautiful time in that you're seeing so many people get in this business, there's so many avenues like with streaming, you know, online, and it's not just the three network shows where everyone's just fighting for that one job. There's so many avenues. There's room to let people in, especially people of color and especially women of color. I'm sure that you saw Monty's interview on, on Facebook, and I have to admit when I saw it and read it, I was, I was actually shocked how little representation there was. I did not know it was 1%. And then thinking about it even more, realizing, wait, if that's 1%, the percentage of Black women is less than 0.5, or maybe 0.4. You know, it, 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 that actually really shocked me. Letting assistants come in, opening the door for them. And I have to admit, I'll be full disclosure, I need to do more about that. And do more about hiring people of color and the job is still the same. We all can do the same job. I think it's a beautiful thing just to like have more women. And it's surprising to me because it's like, you know, it's like, you know, when, when films started, even the silent film editor, I mean, Oh, all women. Yep. All women. Yeah. 
female directors, female, mm-hmm. you know, editors, you know, screenwriters. Like it, that, it was a woman's medium. And I don't know, it, it's odd when it changed. It's just very odd. And I find it very fascinating. I, I talked to Walter Murch about this and he had an interesting and of course, you know, incorrect as far as what people's skill sets are. I mean, my daughter is a, you know, going to medical school, so she's a total STEM kid. But Walter said that the difference was um, early on, they thought, you know, this is a great job for women being editors because it's kind of like a sewing machine. You know, you're, you're just cutting stuff together. It's like putting together a dress. And he, his feeling was that when sound came in, it became like an engineering job more than a assembling, putting something together like a dress. And that's when men took over was when, oh, now this is technical and men have to do it. But I agree with you that women were the editors at the beginning. And so many editors, you know, all the, some giants, right, of our, our profession. You know, Verna, Thelma, Ann Coates, Sally Mankey, Dee Dee. It's the, the, the giants of the industry are women. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that having looked at those women that, for me, I was like, oh, yeah, well, of course I can do it. Again, but I looked at it as being a woman. You know, I, I, I'm totally shocked, like I said, maybe of the low representation of a woman of color, a black woman of color. I didn't, because it's only a handful of us. And we actually really all don't know each other, you know. It's just like, which is just like, when you have Kelly Dixon, who's just like, you know, kicking ass, man. (laughs) She's like, I'm such a big fan of hers. You have Joy McMillan. These are just like really great, I I call them great filmmakers. I feel that it's changing and that the, the door is opening and I will do whatever I can to help facilitate that. Except for the only way I knew about Kelly Dixon was when she, you know, when she was still working on Breaking Bad and articles when Breaking Bad just got huge, you know, uh, you know, Joy McMillan, when she got nominated for an Oscar, you know, when she got huge, uh, Terrilyn Shulshire. I heard about her because I was a fan of Love and Basketball. And I was like, oh, wait, there's a black female editor that directed Love and Basketball. And she's like been in the business for over 30 years. She was like an assistant editor on Twin Peaks. The way I found them is just seeing articles like with Joy McMillan and Kelly Dixon, you know, you're reading articles. But with, with Tara Lynn, it was just a curiosity because I was a fan of this movie. And then it was like, oh, then I see a picture and I'm like, to me, it's just like, it's honestly, it's like word of mouth. It really is. And it's sad because, you know, as you both know, if you're looking for somebody, a post producer will usually have like their list and it's usually men and you may have some women sprinkled about, but they're usually going to bring in people that they've worked with before, which is sadly a self-fulfilling catch 22 prophecy. It really is like a catch 22. I've encountered this so many times when I go in the editing room on that first day and I've had male assistant editors, not mine, but other male assistant editors walk into my room and challenge me. And I never looked at it as they were challenging me as a black woman. I looked at they were challenging me as a woman. You got this job as your woman. Can you really cut? Oh, you have to prove to me that you can cut. Like I'm already the editor. 
Mm-hmm. And I wrote to this assistant editor who has this attitude, well, I should be cutting by now. I've been an assistant editor for two years. And I'm like, really? <laughs> you know, like I was an assistant editor for over 10. I have to prove to you. I, I'm assuming there's some young black women in film school right now wondering what they should do. What advice do you have for them to at least get to the point where you are right now, where you're cutting and you, you're in the editor's chair? Don't listen to people tell you what you can and what you can't do. I think that for me was the biggest thing. Having people tell me, well, you can't be an editor or you're not good enough. I've had that before. You have to listen to yourself and not let anyone tell you, dictate your life and, and dictate where they think you should go. I've always looked at it for me as the reason why I didn't was maybe a little bit of naivete, a little bit of ignorance, but to know that if you want to do this, who, who has the right to tell you that you can? So I think that's the biggest thing is just like, if you want to do this, you learn whatever you have to. If film school is right for you, then Godspeed, you go to film school. If it's not, then you know, and you're able to get in the business, Godspeed, you get in the business and you learn whatever you have to. And then you talk to as many people as possible. Really do feel myself at being very fortunate, having worked at Wolf Films and having that exposure to all those great editors in one spot. I do realize that a lot of people did not have that. Just continue to trudge forward and don't listen to someone tell you who they think you are and what they think you could be. We all have our insecurities. I've seen people thinking they're giving great advice, but it's coming from their own insecurity and not realizing, you know what? You don't know what that person is going through. This person may hear this information and interpret it and it may crush their their soul. And how do those people get into the industry? You have to be dogged and you have to, what's great now is there's so much information out there and that you have the ACE intern program. I didn't even know about the ACE intern program when I got into it. And it was like, but knowing about what programs are out there, researching Motion Picture Editors Guild, just do the research and find out where you want to go. Just send an email. You don't know what will happen. You honestly don't know until someone says, you know, no. Then to me, I say yes. You know, that, that's honestly how I got into Wolf Films because I was like, well, I haven't heard anything. Again, I chalk it up to being very naive. But, <laughs> you know, I was like, no one's, until I hear no, the job is taken or we filled. I literally was just calling, you know, I was just calling. I'm like, hey, have you heard anything? Hey. <laughs> Yeah, that, that, that was literally what I was doing. Some guy's like, just hire her. For God's sakes, I can't take any more phone calls. I, she's annoying. That's really what happened. They were just like, they were like, we just hired you because you seemed like you wanted it more than anybody else. And I'm like, I did. Also just wanted a job because I was starving. But <laughs> that's really what happened. You just have to really be dogged. Final question. How do those people distinguish themselves? Man woman, black, white, how do those people distinguish themselves once they get that job to move up the ladder? You, I think you distinguish yourself by putting in the work. And that doesn't mean you work for free, you know, and work overtime for free or anything like that. 
but you distinguish yourself by putting in the work, by listening, by showing your editor that you understand not only the basics, cutting and sound effects is a form of storytelling, you know, understanding that process, but also asking questions, being in the room as much as possible, asking your editor, okay, is it okay if I just watch you cut a scene? Because like I said, it's all in here. So sometimes, and that, but that's how I learn. I just watch editors cut a scene and I would watch their hands, watching how they move. That was the biggest learning experience for me. Even if it's cutting something on the side, on the weekends, you know, if you're staying late, you're cutting something, you, you take a scene that your editors cut or you take a scene before your editors cut and you cut it. Then you give it to that, you get notes. That's the first step and storytelling and editing process. You cut a scene, an assistant cuts a scene. Sometimes editors, we get into our own little bubble and you forget what, I got to give notes on this. This is important to this person. You give notes to them so that they can continue to grow. And that's how you're starting to mentor. That's the first step because you can't assume anything. You really can't. Do you feel like those people do have to say that they want to be an editor. I just talked to somebody that said, oh, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to bring somebody along unless I know they want to be an editor. I assume that everybody that, that is an assistant wants to be an editor. For me personally, I don't really ask that. I, I have worked with somebody who is just like, I've been around a long time and I'm very comfortable being an assistant editor. And she told me, but it was, I was like, okay, I, I respect that. But I always, I make that assumption. Like if you're working for me, I'm assuming you want to be an editor. I want to try to do whatever I can to help promote you, to help you grow. You know, I remember I worked on a show where this editor, he was so proud that he had, I think it was like two or three assistants be bumped up. And just to see that pride. And I worked with another female editor and she was so proud too. And they're, and their assistants are thriving and working. And I was like, okay, that's, again, that's what you want. Something that an assistant should see that a lot of what they do, you don't have to feel like you're a great editor when you're applying for that job. You just have to know, as long as I'm a good person that's willing to put in the hours and people like working with me. Absolutely. You'll get the job. Absolutely. That That is, honestly, that's like 90% of the job, to, in my opinion, because if people like working with you and you put in the work, you're going to, you innately will work harder. You work harder for a showrunner because you want, you love working with that showrunner. Question for you. Sure. Off topic, I've read your books. Every editor that you've interviewed, who is the white weld for you? Like, who was the one that you have not interviewed? Like, what is your white well that you're like, I need this person, I'm waiting for it, like you're itching? My white whale. There were several interviews I really wanted to land. Uh, for a long time, it was probably Thelma Schoonmaker. Um, that took about three years to finally connect with her. Uh, Ann Coates was another big one that I tried to get for a long time and finally got. Uh, Walter Murch is obviously an icon in the film editing world, and I was really happy that I got to meet him in person for our series of interviews. Um, I'd say that even from the beginning of Art of the Cut, the one person that I really wanted but figured I'd never get is Marsha Lucas. She seems to like to stay off the radar, but I've seen some interviews with her, and I'd absolutely love to talk to her. If anybody out there knows her, please 
help me. <laughs> Let her know I don't want to harpoon her, just interview her. <laughs> and Felicia, now that I've added you to my interview list, I can move on to Marsha. <laughs> well, thank you. You're very kind. It was such a pleasure talking with you. I really enjoyed uh, our conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for reaching out. Like I said, I'm a big fan. I will continue to read your books, and I'm very honored that you reached out to me. Thank you. That's it for Out of the Cut this week. Thanks for listening. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for nearly 250 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book Art of the Cut Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guest, Felicia Livingston. I'm Steve Hallfish, and today, a special heads up, I'll be guest hosting over on Pro Video Coalition's Art of the Shot series. I'll be interviewing a friend of mine, David Mullen, ASC, about his fantastic work as the cinematographer on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. So if you're interested in filmmaking in general, instead of just editing, join me for that interview. And as always, if this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hallfish. And if you're looking to connect with Felicia, follow her on Twitter at at Film Rebel. As always, I hope you subscribe to this podcast and give it a review, please. Then be sure to spread the word and tell a filmmaking or film-loving friend. <laughs>